Now, last week, you'll remember in Proverbs chapter 25, we closed out that chapter, and I think with one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible uh, to help us, you know, to be all that God want, wants us to be. And really, honestly, all said and done, that's, that's what our church is all about. We just want to help you be all that God wants you to be. And uh, we understand that there's a process to that. It just doesn't happen. And uh, Christianity is not like a box of Cracker Jacks where you just open it up and you get the prize inside, and the prize happens to be you become everything God wants you to be. Uh, That's not the way it works. There's a process to that. And, uh, you know, we talked about building a wall. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it says it's a great thing. He that hath no rule over his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. And we talked about, you know, the Bible doctrine in our lives, our Christian lives, and, you know, uh, building a wall around you, around our church, uh, around our families. You know, and it's 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 us becoming, our church becoming steadfast and unmovable. Uh, in the truth of God's word. We're steadfast, but yet we're not unflexible. We want to always be sensitive to where people is at. We want to, you know, we realize we have the truth, but, uh, you know, grace in truth is the key. And, you know, but we talked last week about taking the emotions out of our lives as far, and, and I don't mean that that we go around like zombies. I'm talking about uh, letting our emotions run our lives. You know, taking the motions and, and drama out of all the issues we deal with, you know, uh, and we have to deal with people is, is vital. And in, in ministry, you most certainly find and have to deal with uh, the drama queens and the drama kings of Christianity. You know, they always have an ongoing issue. Uh, they always want uh, people around them, you know, they always want to be talking about themselves and what they're going through and their struggles. And, and I understand there's times that that's very meaningful and it needs to be. But they're never able to grow past themselves. And that's one of the things that we all have to do. We all got to get over ourselves, past ourselves. And when we don't, then we're like a defenseless city, Proverbs 25, 28 last week. And, you know, we get held captive by our emotions. And we can't make good decisions. We can't, we can't deal with things properly. You know, uh, there's always Christians who are always looking for sympathy and, and for someone to enable them in their drama. Actually, they feed off of it. And I know that we've all seen people like that, you know, and, you know, honestly, I, I wouldn't really encourage anybody to go into the military today. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I just think that uh, the, the way our country is that, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, young soldiers become cannon fodder. Uh, they get thrown into the worst situations and there certainly isn't any support for them. And, you know, it's a, it's just a, it's just a, it ain't like it used to be. It really isn't. And, you know, I know that every generation of military always goes back to their generation as being the better one in the real Marine Corps and the real Army. And I understand that, but there is a lot of truth in that. And on my Army days, you know, I, uh, all the way back to 19, late 1960s, most of you weren't even born then. And I, I learned a lot of great things. 
Uh, they were all unshaved men. All your cadre were unshaved people. But they understood the reality of life much better than most of God's people do today. And I, there were some great things that I was taught that I remember to this day. Unfortunately, most of them you can't tell anybody about. But my old drill sergeant used to take the word sympathy. And he would give it us when we would be down and out and want to quit and just be all busted up and everything. And he'd say, you want sympathy? He says, in the dictionary, you'll find the word sympathy between two words. And I can't tell you what those two words are. <laughs> I never forgot that. And I know there's times that we have someone lose a loved one and our sympathy in our heart goes out to them. I'm certainly not talking about that. What you guys did with Nate and his mom passing away is just, is what our church does, reaching out to people. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who just have to have it to exist. I mean, uh, you know, and it's a thing where it's, it's something that people have to feed off of. Uh, when you get back to the, the truth of the Word of God, when you get back to the facts, you know, like we talked about last week, it'll, it'll take the drama and the emotion out of everything we have to deal with. And again, I'm not saying you want to be emotionless in your life. What I'm trying to tell you is, is you want the Holy Spirit of God to guide your emotions through every situation in life. That's the key. And you do that through the principles of the Word of God. And nothing will define someone. In my mind, nothing will define someone better than how they will use the facts and Bible principles in any given situation. That's really the defining point of our lives. It isn't about what we say. It isn't about you go out and buy a 65-pound King James Bible. You've got to get one of those trailers to pull it around in. It's about when push comes to shove and you have to deal with situations that verge on right or wrong, do your emotions guide you in that or do the principles of the Word of God guide you in that? That's where the rubber meets the road. And we all are faced with that. That, unfortunately, is not something that just the other guy goes through. Your life is going to be faced and filled with decisions that are going to draw on you emotionally. And many times when people don't have the wall built around them, they don't have the Bible doctrine to hold them together, that this is where they fall apart. And this is where, you know, people who claim to love God and be strong for God and could give the impression that they're a pillar of the faith. When, when it all falls apart, so do they. You know, and, and nothing, like I said, will define someone better than, than that. <clears throat> the wall of our protection against ourselves first. Now, I know the Bible says we're up against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but I want to tell you, your worst enemy and my worst enemy is us. Amen. Forget the world, the flesh, and the devil. <clears throat> your biggest problem is you. And my biggest problem is you, too. I <laughs> know. My biggest problem is me. And then I gave you last week <clears throat> one of the little outlines that, man, I, I have used 40 plus years of my life. That little concept, it's absolutely. Uh, phenomenal. Faith, fact, and feeling. We have faith. We're all saved, but our faith is in the facts, and that facts then produces our feelings. And, you know, to fix, we all have issues, and you're going to deal with people. Many of you, you know, next week we have the Bible Institute, then a week after that we have the people ministry. I, I look around here, almost everybody here is working with somebody and helping them on whatever level they're at. Every week, four or five more people come to me and say, hey, so-and-so wants me to disciple them or do this or that. I think it's great. 
But I want you to know and listen carefully today because to fix any issue, and you're going to work with people who are going to have issues. I've never met anybody ever in Christianity that didn't have some problem they had to work on. And it's going to take four things in your life and whoever you work with. And the first thing that it takes, and these are non-negotiable. You can't just say, well, you know, kind. no, no. If you don't have these four things, you're not going to go anywhere. And the first thing you've got to have is a base of truth. You've got to have a foundation that you're going to begin to build something on. And that will immediately cut to your emotions. That will immediately begin to take out what somebody said about you or you don't like this person or this or that person. When you just base everything you do on the truth of the word of God, you being strong out to bear the infirmities of the weak, love your neighbor as yourself. When you start to follow those things instead of, well, I don't like that person because whatever. You got to have a baseline of truth. And then based on that baseline of truth, you have to have a workable plan to fix the situation. You have to be able to see the situation, understand the problem, and based on the baseline of truth, then have a plan that you're going to enact in somebody's life to bring them. And, and most of you, many of you do exactly what I'm saying when you work with people. You've done it in your own life with me, with you. Then the third thing is once you have that plan, then you have to follow the truth so that God, whatever you're going through, so God can now begin, maybe for the first time in your life, for God to begin to get the honor and glory out of what you're going through instead of you getting it. Allowing God to use you. And all the drama, all the emotion, this is the fourth thing, all the drama and all the emotion must be taken out through the doctrine of truth. I've learned anything in 45 plus years, almost 50 years in the ministry, I've learned this. Truth can fix anything. But you have to apply it. So last week and this week is going to kind of go together. So I wanted to kind of build a little bridge here. And today uh, we're going to begin to look at chapter 26. And we will move through the first three verses here. Uh, and this also, chapter 26, is, is going to be a, a great chapter. Now it says here in Proverbs 26, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 for you. And uh, it says, as snow in summer and as rain in harvest, so honor is not seemingly for a fool. As the bird by wandering, as the swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come. A whip for the horse and a bridle for the ass and a rod for the fool's back. Three simple little verses here. Uh, and as you look at them, it, I mean, you would say to yourself, probably, maybe you wouldn't, but you'd say, now, how do you get an hour-long message out of this? I don't know either, but we're going to work at it today. <laughs> Trained eye. I want to show you some things. Before we do that, Sam, you're sitting in the back back there. Would you ask God blessing on the, on the sermon for me this morning, sir? Amen, Sam. Thank you, buddy. Now, let's look at verse 1. Let's start with that. As snow in the summer and as rain in harvest, so honor is not seemingly for a fool. Now, again, the verse on the surface, it looks very simple and very straightforward. But when we look at this, 
and scrutinize it through the principles of the Word of God and what we already know, that trained eye mindset. Uh, there's a lot here. So let's begin. Now, now we know that, first of all, that Proverbs, and I've said this many times through our study, but I keep reminding you of it. Proverbs is about two men primarily. It's about a wise man and about a foolish man. The wise man finds God. He accepts God's wisdom. He gets understanding, and he, he winds up being everything that God wants him to be. The foolish man, on the other hand, is someone who rejects God's teaching. He rejects wisdom. He rejects correction. He rejects everything that God tries to do, and he winds up being a fool. And the whole book will weave itself around those two men. And then we've got some other characters coming in, and we've talked about that, but those two are the primary, prime ones that the whole book kind of revolves around. And we know, we understand that doctrinally, that's talking about the nation of Israel. And you'll find in Matthew chapter 25, there were 10 virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. And the whole thing goes along that way doctrinally. But we also know that there's a practical application. And in life, as you deal with people, as I deal with people, they come into our church or they come into your life or you work with them, you're already well aware that there's just basically two kinds of people in the world, wise people and foolish people. People who will take instructions and will listen and people who won't. And our full of Proverbs will be an example of, of many of God's people today. And Proverbs basically defines them as a person who, and there's four things that you look for. Uh, somebody who despises wisdom. You'll find that in Proverbs 29, verse 11. You'll find that they like to, or do, are conscious of slandering people. You'll find that in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. You'll find the third thing, that the fool's eyes are to the ends of the world, Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. It's all about them. It's all what they want. They never care about anybody else. That's why they never care about what you've done for them. All they care about is, you know, themselves and what they can gather today. And then the fourth thing, they reject and will resist any form of accountability or correction or rebuke, Proverbs seventeen ten. And uh, that's, that's just how the Bible defines them. And, you know, within our text, historically, uh, this will be, uh, as Solomon is writing to this, and he's saying, my son, he's writing it to Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, in 1 Kings chapter 12, and verses 1 through 24, we're told was Solomon's son. And when Solomon dies, Rehoboam comes to the throne, and he takes over the kingdom. And he, he's, a, he's a terrible king. In fact, you hear me talk about short-term and long-term. We use that a lot, don't we? He's a great example of that. He splits the kingdom north and south. And uh, one of uh, Solomon's uh, generals uh, uh, takes the, uh, the, the, the southern tribes and, and, they, or the, and the other set of tribes, and they, and, and they actually now are at war with each other. They actually fight wars, like the civil war that we fought, north and south. And Jeroboam, uh, he takes the tribes, and uh, he sets his up. Rehoboam takes the other side, and he takes his up. And, and what he did was, he, what he did was, is he, he set Israel on a course for destruction. Now, he does this around, oh, 1000 B.C. or so, and yet 
Israel exists for another 400 years till 606 B.C. when she goes into the captivity. But we know that that 400 years is, is not good. And it's just a downward spiral to their destruction. My point is this. Long term and short term. He made one decision short term that destroyed a nation long term. And my point I'm trying to get across to you is this. You can make one emotional bad decision and 20 years later it'll come back and kill you. This is the lessons that we learn from Rehoboam. He destroys the unit. You know, he's not, he's much like most pastors today. They, instead of building unity in their churches, they're going around putting everybody and putting everybody against everybody. And they're dividing people up so they can, that's how many of them rule and, and keep control of their church. They pit one against the other. And he, Rehoboam destroys the unity of the nation of Israel. I'll tell you something else he does. He's got all the old men around him that his father went to and David went to to get counsel. He goes to them and he says, how should I run the kingdom? And they take him back to the great glory days of Israel and tell him how he should handle the people. Then he goes to all the young guys, his contemporaries, all the guys that have no wisdom. They have no understanding. They haven't seen anything, been anywhere, or done anything with the nation of Israel. And he asked them. They give him the total opposite advice that the old wise men gave him. And you know what he did? He took the Harvard crowd, the young minds, the intellectuals of his day over the solid wisdom. And there again, he violated the biblical principles. He's a fool. Now, doctrinally, as I've already said, this will be the nation of Israel as God's son. And they completely go away from God and his word and, and uh, become a foolish nation. And uh, they are subject, they are the subject of the book of Proverbs, as I said, a wise man and a foolish man. You see this phenomena at the first coming of Christ. You have the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who hate him. And then you have the common ordinary man like Nicodemus and, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus who, who love him. So you have wise men there and fools there. That's the nation of Israel. But ah, but inspirationally, and that's where we want to focus today. Inspirationally, this is talking about you and me as God's sons. Us as fools. Us people, God's people who will reject the solid uh, teachings of the Bible, the truths of the Bible, and continue to live in the dream world of ourself and self-righteousness, living in a world of denial and living in a world that is not reality. And the whole book of Proverbs has been uh, about us getting understanding of God's truth so we uh, can continue to be uh, and not play the fool. And Solomon, or excuse me, Saul is a good example of this. He said in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 21, he says, when he finally realizes how he screwed up and what an idiot he's been, way too late, he says, this is his words, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. But it was too late for him. And sometimes when you wake up and, and, and realize what you've done, it's going to be too late for you. <clears throat> there are sometimes you put <clears throat> so many foolish decisions in your world, so many bad choices in your world, <clears throat> that when you finally wake up, it just overwhelms you. And verse 1 is simply stating a fact. It's saying that it does not snow in July. 
or when it rains, you can't harvest crops. Now, there's really two good solid principles here that I want to draw out of here. So let's put uh, our trained eye glasses on and let's just look at this. Let's look at the first one, snow in summer. Now, keep in mind, the object here is a fool, somebody being a fool. And what he's saying here, that snow in summer are two very clear contrasts. They don't fit together. And just like snow in summer won't fit together, a foolish man and a wise man will not have much in common to get along with. There'll be no bond. There'll be no baseline of truth. There'll be no alignment of ideas. It's a, it's a, it, there's two different worlds involved here. And you'll see, you'll see this in the people sometimes that you, you actually work with. Uh, you know, you'll try to help them, they, but they won't change. You try to make an investment in their lives, but it, it, it won't do any good. It doesn't go anywhere. It's like BBs off a brick wall. It, it, it just, everything you try to give them just bounces off of them. And in time, uh, you come up with a great principle that's found in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, which is so true, where it simply says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And you can't. A fool and a wise man have absolutely nothing in common like snow in July in Kansas City. And in time, once this reality begins to set in, the deeper you try to go in the Bible with them, the more resistance you're going to meet. Their rejection of truth is going to start out in a basic, simple way, but the more you try to keep them accountable, help them be responsible, and build self-discipline in them, the more you're going to see the great contrast that, you know what, you can't, you can't make somebody do right that doesn't want to do right. And in most cases, they're run by their emotions, their feelings. They have more drama in their lives than, uh, than you know, and, and they want to stay that way. I, I don't watch them. I know some of you do, and I don't have a problem with it. I, I mean, I think it's fine. There's all, everybody's got their own taste, but I either, I th- maybe it's tonight. I don't know. Maybe it's next week. I, I don't know. But there's the Academy Awards are coming up. And, you know, everybody gets, everybody just dies for that little golden Oscar. And it's a thing where, you know, and, and people like to watch those. They, have, they give Oscars for, for the movies, for the actors, best supporting actor, for this and that. And I'm not saying anything wrong with it. I, I'm not. I, I think that, uh, you know, they, I, I, as I remember right, it's either in another four or five years, it's, going to, it's 90-something now. It's going to be 100 years of Academy Awards. King Kong was made in 1933. He got one. He failed to show up because he fell off the Empire State Building. But anyway, it's a thing where I'm fine with it. But what I'm telling you is this. If there ever needs to be, and we have all kinds. We have volleyball. We have softball. We have parties. We have birthdays. We have Super Bowl parties almost. We have all those things. (laughs) But I'll tell you, every church needs to put in at least one time a year an Academy Award performance. It needs to recognize the great drama queens and kings within their church. Get your little scolding Oscar. That'll be as close as any reward you're ever going to get. Bring them up. Introduce them. Best female actor. Best 
male drama king. Best whiner. You know, they do cinematography and, and, and sound. and So we can, we can split it up. Best whiner. We could have one be the best complainer. I mean, it's endless. I'm getting these in my brain now. Will somebody write these down? We're going to do this. This is great. And I'm telling you, but that's what Christianity has become. And that's because so many people don't have a wall built around them. Now they, they're faced with things and they just, their emotions are running every aspect of, of their life. And you're going to find out that, you know, you, you can't, as a person who has discipline in your life and you have a structure in your life, uh, you're going to realize that you don't have a lot in common. Just, and that's what the verse is saying, like snow in summer. It, 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 it doesn't compute. It's, it's a great contrast, and there's no greater contrast in the Bible and in life and certainly in the ministry than a wise man and a fool. You just cannot get them together. You try to hold them accountable and make them responsible, but they're just all over the place with their emotions. You can't get... I've had people that I've given them verses, and the verses were great verses for what they wanted. And it was like I never... They just bounce all over the place. The verses can't stick in. They don't get a hold. And if you're stable, fairly stable, if you're disciplined and you're in the Bible... You know, in time, uh, you're just going to see it's not going to work. You're going to try to put everything you've got in them to help them be, but everything is going to be a race that you try to do because like snow in August, the contrast is too great. And you've got to remember now, you don't go in Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, you don't go four verses before you find that God divided the light from the darkness and the truth of God's word will always divide before it ever puts together. You see, that's the problem in Christianity. We want to get everybody together without dividing first. And that won't work. Because Genesis chapter 1, 1 verse 4 says, the four verses in, boy, he tells you, and God divided the light from the darkness. And the rest of your Bible, in its simplest form, you know what it's about? God dividing truth from error. Light from darkness. Right from wrong. Fools from wise men. Then it says in verse 1, as rain in harvest. Now the example here is, when it's at harvest time, and we know that in the Bible, that's a picture of the church age. Bible tells us that today, for you and for me, as God's servants, that the field's or white unto harvest, John 9, 32. He's told us in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 8, one of the greatest places in the Bible that shows how God has sent workers into his vineyard, and he even gives you the time from 33 AD right up to the rapture of the church, and we find ourselves as the last workers going in, if you put the timetable to it, in 1837. So we're at the last shift of the last part of the shift, but we're workers, and he sends us into the vineyard. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that the harvest, and this is so true, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Because when we should be doing the work of God that he called us to, 
The fields being white under harvest. We can't because of the storms in our life and the rain and the drama and the emotions. And, 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 and not only is it a contrast between a wise man and a fool, but you'll never do the work that God has for you because you're always dealing with some issue. There's always some storm in your life. And just like you can't go out and harvest crops when a rainstorm, you'll never do the God work God called you to do with all the drama and all the issues and all the storms in your life. And a guy there, we're looking out, a farmer looking out there over the fields and it's pouring down rain and he's got to get the crops in. He comes to reality, he ain't going to get them in. And I'm telling you, some of God's people have so much drama in their life, so much emotion in their life, so many problems in their life. The field is wet into harvest, but we will never get the crop in. So let's just forget singing, bringing in the sheaves. Let's forget Standing on the promises. We'll sing sitting on the premises. The great pillars of the church have turned into the pillows in the church. Now we're fools. And a fool, in contrast to a wise man, has absolutely no real work for God in their life. It's all a pretense, it's all a show. It's all a wannabe make-believe. It's all, it's not real based on the Bible. It's based on their emotion and what they think. Who cares what God says? It doesn't matter what God's word is clear on. It's what you feel about what you feel, and that becomes the directive by which you live your life by. You know what your problem is? You're a city broken down without walls. You have no control and you put out this gas that you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you really love God and you're serving God and doing all these great things for God. But at the end of the day, when you put a microscope through the word of God, you ain't doing squat that doesn't fit into your agenda. What you want to do. Now look at the last part of verse one. He says, so honor not seemingly for a fool. Now, we know already historically this will be Rehoboam, and what a, what a disaster he was. You know, I mean, he split the kingdom north and south. Everything went to pieces under him, and he set the nation of Israel on a course that 400 years later, they were going to cease to be the nation that God wanted them to be, all because of one man's emotional decision. And yet I want to tell you this. You know, you put Rehoboam over here and David over here. You know, uh, I, I want to make this clear. Even the best people do foolish things at times. Amen. I mean, David was a fool many times in his life. Amen. Saul was a fool many times in her life. You say, well, Bob, what's your point? What's the difference? The difference is David hearkened to the discipline of the word of God and the rebuke where Saul never did. My point is this, we all have a foolish nature about us, Amen. every one of us. Amen. The only question is today, when push comes to shove and Nathan points that pointed finger in your face and says, thou art a man, what are you going to do? See? One becomes, binds up, becoming killed by God, the Bible says. That's, that's uh, you know, Saul in his life. 
Rehoboam is a disaster in his life. David, Bible says, with all of his issues, with all of his problems, the Bible says he was a, he was a, he was a king after God's own heart. He did what was right all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And the truth of the matter is, no, he didn't. God wasn't looking at the acts. God was looking at his attitude of heart that when God had to squeeze him, he responded. We're all going to screw up. Nobody here is going to live a perfect life. I'm not asking you to. What I'm asking you today is when God squeezes you, what do you do? That's the difference. What you do makes you a fool or a wise man. I mean, he took the greatest nation on the planet and by his stupid, emotional, self-centered decisions, took the greatest nation on the planet and made them a byword to the Gentile nations. The joke today is always about Jews and their money and their business deals. And the world hates Jews. The world hates the nation of Israel. And every time a a butt end of a joke comes out, it's going to have a Jew connected with it. It's just that simple. Emotional decisions that we make today will come back and kill you 20 years from today. Long term. Now, inspirationally, he says here that a uh, so honor is not seeming for a fool. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, that we are to give honor unto honor is due. Now, what does that mean? 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. So there's an honor connected with your Christian life that you need to understand that you get through the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. It's not, hey, look at me. That's the fool. It's, hey, look at God and what he did for me. It isn't like, look at me. It's simply recognizing what God is doing in a person's life and you give the honor and glory to God of what he's doing, uh, doing through them. It's like somebody works with you and helps you and brings you through a tough time in your life and you say to them, you've got two things you can say. You can say, man, I'll tell you what, you did everything for me and I just want you to know you're the greatest person in the world. Da, 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 da. And that all may be true. But the real truth and the real answer is simply this. I want to thank God for putting you in my life. I want to thank God for what he did in your life. No, I want to thank God for what you allowed God to do in your life and then God putting you in my life. You see how it works? Thank you for letting God use you. You didn't have to spend the time with me. You didn't have to do all of this. You didn't have to babysit me through my, my tough times. Thank you. And I know I want to give God the glory because you did it because of what God did for you and you saw what God did for you and allowed him to do it in you and it allowed him to use you to do it in me. That's what I'm talking about. It's an honor to serve God and to be used of God. It's a great honor. The problem is that most pastors, most Christians, they want that honor and glory for themselves. So they'll put a doctor in front of their name, a PhD in front of their name. They'll put a, a, some kind of uh, educated uh, alphabet in front of their name so that everybody knows how smart they are. Let me tell you something. All your degrees in this world didn't give you the wisdom that you got. If you didn't get God's wisdom from a book without any degree, you didn't get squat. 
It's your body, your vessel, as he says, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. That's your body in sanctification. That's separated from the world and honor. That's God getting the honor and glory uh, out, of, out of your life. So he says, not, he says, so honor is not seemingly for a fool. Now that verse there is not only in this life, but the reference here is clearly without a doubt will be to the judgment seat of Christ. In the Bible, there's two aspects of that judgment. There's the judgment seat of Christ, and then there's a millennial inheritance. And in the Bible, it looks like that the judgment seat of Christ is where you get your crowns or your rewards, and there's five of them listed in the Bible. But when Christ comes back into the millennium, then you get an inheritance. That's something that you share with Christ as you reign with him. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says that if we deny him now, he'll deny us our reign then. And Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 says that there's coming a day when all those crowns that we get because you won people to Christ or you put up with it or you abstain from the world and, and all the things that we get crowns for, Bible says you get to the judgment seat of Christ and you, God dumps those crowns on your feet and you have those things and, and some of you are going to have to have dump trucks to pull them away. And I get it, I get it, and I get it. And you might think that that's something that you're going to stand up there and say, oh boy, look at all the crowns I got. Look at all this, look at all that. Praise the Lord, I got No, that's not how it's going to work. Let me tell you how it's going to work. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 4 that there's coming a day you're going to load up all those crowns that you got down here by serving God and you're going to lay them at his feet. You know why? Because you wouldn't have one of them if it wasn't what he did for you. It's not about your glory. It's not about what your abilities are. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about where you went to school and how much you learned. It's about that he came down and died on that cross and he saved you and he filled you with the Holy Spirit of God for a purpose. That is to serve him and to give him back and give him have the honor and glory out of your life. So he gives it to you. You give it back to him. In your hymnal there, I'm not sure what page number it is, but in your hymnal there, there's an old song that says, and must I go in empty handed? You see, the real tragedy is not about us losing any honor for ourselves. I mean, the real, the real tragedy here is, is but having no honor to bring and give back to the Lord. I can't think of anything more destitute in a Christian's life than that. Walking in there empty-handed. Walking in and looking into the eyes, sitting on the throne, the one that loved you and died for you, that was talked about in the Song of Solomon, the eyes of a dove. Looking and understanding now with the full knowledge of God. Right now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Staying there and for the first time in your life, understanding everything you did. By the way, you could have got it through the book here, but you chose not to. But you do get it there. And that Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And it's not about whether you will bow your knee or not. And right now, a lot of you won't. It's not about whether you will or you won't. It's about when you will. And you'll walk down there and walk into that throne room and you'll walk there and see the piles of treasure that men and women down through history have served God and loved him, laid at his feet. And it's going to flash across your mind that you wasted your whole life doing your thing. Nobody could tell you nothing. Now you get to tell him why you're there empty-handed. 
It'll be a day. It'll be a day. And, and having no honor to bring into God. No, I, you know, I mean, by this time, I, you, you probably could haul in your boat. Or your car, or your house. Or all your worldly possessions, and you could try to lay them at his feet. What he wants is honor and glory from you, through you. And that's why honor's not seemingly for a fool. Contrast is too great. Then verse 2. I know, we're glad we're off verse 1. Well, verse 2 ain't going to get any better. Somebody says, I don't like the way you talk. You're going to like it less before I get through. As the bird by wandering and as the swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come. Now, you probably want to get this note in your Bible. I don't know how many of you would have this in here, but this is a little piece of the puzzle here for you. Now, here's what he's saying. We're going to look at it doctrinally for a minute here. The curse causeless. Let's talk about this, and like I said, you want to get this little note in your Bible. Doctrinally, that'll be a reference to the Roman Catholic Church and all the anathemas. Anathema means curses that she has put on everybody down through history, especially in the tribulation period. But all down through history, the Roman Catholic Church has put a curse on everybody who will not uh, bow to her and will be in opposition to her. Over in our chart over there, you've got the uh, Christian councils. They start with 325 A.D. and they run up to about 1965 in our world. And these are the ecumenical Christian councils down through history. They're all run by Rome. And they all were put in place to grab hold of Christianity, to define Christianity, and keep you and me in line. The Reformation took place with Martin Luther in the 1500s, and immediately in 1546 they called the Council of Trent. The Pope called the Council of Trent and all the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals and everything showed up there. And what they wound up doing was putting over 150 curses on any Bible-believing Christian who would not submit themselves to Rome. 150 of them. That'd be you and me. In response to the Reformation. And by the way, they've never been taken off the books. Things like the priesthood over the laity that nobody would accept that's a Bible-believer. Things like calling the priest father, which nobody would do, who was saved. Uh, things like the, not accepting the Apocrypha as part of the Bible, which no Bible believer ever did. Uh, things like salvation only through the Mass and not by the blood of Christ, which nobody who's saved would ever accept. The worthlessness of sacraments, the worthlessness of a Mary worship, <laughs> the infallibility of the Pope speaking ex cathedra, whatever he said was more, uh, more powerful than the Bible. That the fact that Rome took the place of the nation of Israel and now ran the world. And their Bible, uh, you know, uh, uh, contrasted from the, the, the Waldensian Bible of the, of the received text. We talked about it Thursday night. All the doctrines that the Bible clearly teaches, she was against and placed curses on anybody who believed them. Now, what does that mean for us? Not a thing. That's why he calls it the curse causeless. Uh, those curses toward us mean absolutely nothing. She has absolutely no power anyway uh, with spiritual things. 
In fact, the example he uses is about as much danger as a bird flying over the top of your head. Which we all know. can be problematic. (laughs) The last thing anybody wants, and it seems like it does this every time you wash your car. Bird flies over and defecates on your car. I looked that word up this morning because I didn't want to use the word crap. (laughs) Trying to clean up my world, and I thought the word defecate would would go a long way. I'm, I'm trying to do better. What he's saying is simply this. The Roman Catholic Church may crap on you, but it'll never kill you. (laughs) And that's really what you got. You don't have to worry about it. The curses that anybody, they put on you mean nothing. To them, it's everything. They think like they've done some great job of God. But the truth of the matter is it's a curse causeless, not a thing. Let me say this. Those curses have never been rescinded and are still on the books today for every Bible-believing Christian. The most average Roman Catholics have no idea what their church is all about, don't want to know. But those, those 150-plus curses among all the other ones that were put out there have never been rescinded, never been rescinded. Somebody asked me the other day about uh, the difference when, that, uh, now that Catholics are calling themselves Christians. And uh, they, they wanted to know, and I told them that, that up to Vatican II, which is in 1960s, someplace in 1960, up to 1960s, when they had what they called Vatican II, which is one of the councils. Before that, Catholics weren't called Christians. They were called Catholics. You were called Christians. But the ecumenical movement moving along as it did in the 60s with that second ecumenical uh, council meeting that they had, they now brought in Roman Catholicism to be Christian. But before that time, it, didn't, it wasn't that way. And that's just the way things work, see? And uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things where uh, that's, you don't have to worry about those things. They're not going to do anything for you, to you. You just move on with what God is doing. Now, now, let me talk about that same verse in a practical way. Now, now I know I'm basically preaching to the choir this morning, so just, you know, hang with me here. But if you commit your life to work with people, which many of you have, and you know what I'm about to say when I say it is true, they all won't work out for you. The contrast is going to be too great. You're going to find people who say they want to do what's right, say they want to fix this, say they want to fix that. They're not happy with their life. They made a lot of bad choices in their life, and they're, they, you know, they're, they're suffering the consequences for it, but they just don't have the self-discipline to change what they need to change. So they'll come in for a while. You'll begin to work with them. And, you know, and I've watched many of you. I, I have. I've watched so many of you pour yourself into people. Uh, it amazes me. You know, I, I just watch you people and you just, you know, you take the people you work with, you take them very seriously. And that's the way it needs to be. I've watched many of you pour yourself into people and at some point, uh, their real character begins to come out and, you know, they're not, they're not going to be happy with you anymore. I mean, for a while it was, oh boy, thank you for putting so-and-so in my world. Oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then it changes. 
Because when they're faced with the real issues they got to tackle. Now, almost anybody can get through discipleship one. Maybe not all of it, but, you know, I mean, without getting too beat up. It depends on how you do it. You know, you come in, you're all so kind, and you teach them the Bible. But when you get moving into the Bible a little bit, and it starts to start knocking on their door, and now they're faced with not just the nice little things about the Bible they need to know, but now they're faced with, I have to take responsibility for my actions. I have to be accountable now to somebody. And, you know, you know why people, and I said this the other week, you know why people won't go to churches? We got people on the website that they love this stuff, they love, but they'll never go to a church. You know why? Because you don't want any accountability. You don't. And when you start to work with somebody and they realize that they've got to now quit blaming everybody else for their problems and they've got to be responsible for them and they've got to be accountable now to some Bible, they don't want any part of it. Because their whole life has been based on blaming others for their issues and now, uh, now they don't like you anymore. Uh, you know, and I know you take that personal. You've got to get past that. You just do. I mean, you look like you're the only person that that ever happened to. And that person's life who does that to you, I guarantee you, you're just one of a long list who have joined the club. You've done me wrong, club. Their whole life has been that way. And in time, it happens to you. They'll speak against you. They'll slander you. Or they'll start to blame you for the problems. They'll, and they'll curse you. I don't mean, like, get a voodoo doll with your picture, picture on it. But I mean, they're against you. And they're all alike. Every one of them that I've met. And I've did a study of this. I've never, I just, for myself, never one time will they ever see the good that you did for them, only what they didn't get that was their own way. I worked for Truman Dollar for a number of years, and I learned so much from him. He told me one time, and I've never forgotten this. It's one of the greatest things that he ever said to me. He said one time, he says, you know what, Bob? He says, people will never remember what you did for them yesterday. They just want to know what you're going to do for them today. And that is so true. So once they praised you, oh, thank you. Oh, this is so good. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now uh, they curse you. And the Bible says it's a causeless curse. For a cursed causeless means absolutely nothing. People like that, and you're going to learn this as you get a little older, you get a little more water under the bridge, get your feet a little more stabilized, get a few good experiences, a lot of bad experiences with people, and you're going to realize that it means absolutely nothing. People in a ministry like this are a dime a dozen. What you do is what I always tell you to do. And I've had you come to me, you know, you, 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 I, I love this about you. You take it personal. <clears throat> you think you did something wrong. You know, you think you might have messed up. You'd have done it differently. They would have turned out differently. No, that ain't the problem. That ain't the problem. They're mad because they were up front with five other people to get an Academy Award and they got passed over. You give it your best shot, you do it by the book, and when they don't want to go any farther, uh, then, you know, you, you, uh, you're, the contrast is too great. You're dealing with a fool. 
versus a wise man. Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You can't. And keep it in mind, God's goal for all of us is unity. But before that unity, he has to divide some things out in your life and my life. And your drama, your emotional instability has got to go. So you move on to somebody else who, who wants the truth out there. I've watched it, you know, and you know this is true. Uh, and you, some of you, you, you talk to me about it. You know, you'll get one or two or three duds who just don't want to do what's right. And uh, it can be discouraging because you want people to do what's right. I never started to work with anybody that I was praying for them, oh, God, make them screw up. I maybe prayed later, oh, God, kill them, but I never prayed, oh, God, screw them up. I gave them the best shot I could, and I know you do. And, you know, it gets to you. But you know what? Then God gives you that one person who he puts into your world that just makes it all go away. That person just wants everything you have for them. You sit down with them to disciple them, and you go home with a brain dead because they've sucked everything out of your brain you got. (laughs) They want to learn everything they can. They can't get enough. And and, in all of that, you just, because you have the right heart and you want to do, you just forget all about them. That's what God does. That's the way he does it. And you've got to realize that, you know, you never want to be intimidated by the fools. They're powerless. It's all their flesh. It's all them. It's all about them based on what they want. You just keep teaching and preaching and being responsible and accountable to the Word of God. Bible calls them in Jude chapter 12, clouds without water. No substance to them. Bible talks about it in Jude 12 that they're carried about by wind. Ephesians 4 verse 14 defines that as every wind of doctrine. They're all over the place. Jude chapter 12 says they're trees whose fruit withereth. They all lose their kids. They talk about how much they love God. Their kids don't even go to church. They want nothing to do with the things of God. And, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's always somebody else's fault. He says, they're trees that where fruit withereth. Then he says, twice dead. Not only are you dead spiritually, but now your kids are dead spiritually. And he says in Jude chapter 12, plucked up by the roots. There's no stability in your life. You're like a young sapling that somebody planted in somebody's yard a week ago. And the weakest person here could go over there and just pull that thing right out. That's where they're at. You take an oak tree that's been in the ground for about 50 years and try to wrap your arms around that one, baby. You'll never pull that one out. Verse 3. I know you're saying, boy, I'm glad we're out of there. Yeah, but look, verse 3 is the worst one yet. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the fool's back. Now, I love this verse because I can cuss and get away with it and be right into scriptures. Now, this is a very simple but yet profound truth. Now, let me ask you a question. Horse, ass, fool. Easy, 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 easy. That's not the question. Just 
slow up a little bit, okay? <sighs> Allow me to start again. Let me ask you a question. A horse asks a fool. What do they have in connection with each other? Think about it. What does a fool, an ass, and a horse have that connects them together that he would use them like this? And here's the answer. All three are absolutely worthless for any purpose until they are broken. You go out and catch a wild horse and saddle it up and try to ride it, he'll buck you off. He'll kick up his hind legs, he'll twist and turn, go to the rodeo sometime. He'll turn sideways, he'll twist, he'll turn, he'll try everything to do to throw you off. You know why? Because he doesn't want to be ridden. And I want to tell you something, some of you have been bucking the sermons for years. You shift and turn and kick your back legs up and turn sideways and do everything to buck off the preaching of the Word of God. That's how they're the same. The unbroken ass, he'll stand still and you can't move him. He's totally unteachable. He's stubborn. He's hard-headed. He'll do what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and he'll just, you try to do something or do some work or have him pull a wagon, he'll just sit there, and he ain't moving. You'll find people that you can't teach anything to, and you can't teach anything to anybody until they're broken. You ever meet anybody like these two? I meet them all the time. I mean, you try to give somebody the truth, the truth, the truth, and they're just kicking their hind legs up, turning sideways, trying to buck off the preaching of the Word of God. Then you get the other ass who just sits there and looks at you. I'm moving. Ain't going to get me. And then the third one is a fool. You see, a fool... He'll experience disaster after disaster in his life. He'll lose his kids. He'll lose his marriage. He'll lose this. He'll lose that. He'll lose everything around him. And yet he never figures it out that God's trying to get his attention. He's oblivious to the fact that God is trying to get his, to look at what's going on in his world. They'll go to church every Sunday. They'll sing in the choir. They'll carry the right Bible. But at the end of the day, they're worthless. They're worthless because they're unwritable and you can't be ridden by the Holy Spirit of God until you're first broken by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you want to get this in your Bible if you don't have it. This is a little piece here for you. The example of this is Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Did you ever see that story? Over in Matthew chapter 21, he says that when they drew nigh into Jerusalem, they were come to Bethanage under the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find the, an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And when you come down there and read the story, when he rides into Jerusalem, and he starts to come into Jerusalem, the Bible says that he rides on the colt, he won't ride on the ass. 
Now, I've actually read commentaries where they've had some of the most absolutely ludicrous, stupidest stuff about why he wrote the small one instead of the full-grown one. I mean, absolutely, you'd have to have a college education in Bible to be that stupid. Anybody who knows the Bible knows that that ass in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 is a picture of the nation of Israel. And anybody knew anything about the Bible, you know that that colt in Job chapter 11, verse 12 is a picture of the Gentiles. So when he's going into Jerusalem and he tells them to get the ass and then get her colt, and he rides the colt instead of the ass, it's because he's making a statement that Israel has not been broken, she's not rideable, and the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, so he rides the ass's colt. See how it works? Salvations of the Jews, John 4, 22. Now, until we get broken, till we come to the end of a self and the drama in our lives, There'll be no writing of the Holy Spirit of God with us into the sunset to do the work that God wants us to do. We're just like snow in July and rain at harvest. We just buck everything God wants to do and sit and be stubborn in our way until the rod of God slops across our back and just has to beat us senseless. And then still, most of God's people still will not get it. You know, back in the book of Judges, and you want to get this in your Bible if you don't have it, there's another great picture of this. And it's the story of Gideon's 300. Gideon, one of the deliverers of the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. Now, in this story, you have Gideon and 300 men who go up against the Midianite army that has coming down and oppressing Jerusalem. And they have... 135,000 troops. Gideon winds up with 300. He's greatly outnumbered. And this is a picture of you and me and what we are up against in the world system. We are greatly outnumbered. And yet God gave him the victory over the world just as he will you, but God has a process for him to go through to get the victory over the Midianites, just like God has a process for you and me to get the victory over the world. And it's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. Uh, you know, the first thing I want you to realize is God is going to get the job done with a minority, never the majority. The Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. One of the things I've learned that if all Christianity thinks it's great, it stinks. Look for, the, look for the minority. That's what you want to look for. Now, Israel starts out with 33,000 troops. That's a fair-sized number. They're still outnumbered over 100,000, but you know what? That, that, you can put up a fair-sized fight if you've got a good strategic point. But they got 33,000 up against 135,000, and uh, God says to them, you know what? I don't want you guys... If you win today, but you're off a cigar, I don't want you guys boasting about how great combat soldiers you are. So 33,000 up against 135,000, just too many. So he says to Gideon, stand up there, pull everybody together, and ask them if anybody's fearful and afraid to fight this battle, you can go home. And 22,000 leave. 
Now he's got 10,000 left. Oh, that's a little tighter, but you know what? Get some good strategic person, get a good battle plan. Tell your guys, all right, you take the left side, you take the right side, have a reserve company in the back, and you give them directions. When they start coming at us, you work your way down. Shoot the officers first, move right on down. Destroy their leadership. And you put the best guys out there, and anybody looks like he's leading anybody to the bathroom, take him out. Take, work your way down. Start the leadership and work down. That's how you do it. Take out the leaders and then work it down. Anybody that stands up and says, follow me, put one right between his eyes. You guys got it? Okay. 10,000, maybe. But he says, that's too many. And then he does an amazing thing. I think this is incredible. He brings them down to the water hole. And he says, tell every man to drink. And he says, they drank two ways. One guy, when he drank, or a bunch of them when they drank, they got down on one knee like that, dipped down in the water and drank it like a dog, lapping it up. The other guys got down in their face like that and were just slurping it all up. 300 were on their knees and did it that way. He says... Send the rest of them home. I want to keep that 300. Now, that's a picture of why God only gets it done with a minority. Because when it comes to water, a type of the word of God, you have to realize you're in a combat zone, and the greatest spot to get ambushed is at a water hole. And those guys that were on the guard that were watching around them, bringing the water up versus the ones who just stuck their head in the water, it's a picture of how some of you will come to the word of God and some of you won't. Some of you will be precise with that book. You'll get that book down. You won't let any word fall to the ground like Samuel did. You'll be very concise in how you get it to your mouth, and you're always looking around because you know that we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And 300 drank with caution. 300 drank with diligence. 300 drank with discipline. 300 drank with with the ability to know that they were in enemy territory, the rest of them just stuck their head in the water and slurped it up, and he said, send them home. And I'll tell you what, you can have a church of 33,000, and God will get the job done with just 300 that approach the Bible the right way. And that's the lesson here. Then once he gets to 300, it lapped like a dog that realized that they were, how they were drinking it, drinking it the way they should, under caution, he tells these 300, you get three things. You get a lamp, you get a pitcher, clay vessel, and you get a trumpet. Everybody was issued those three things. The lamp is a picture of the Word of God. The clay vessel, the pitcher, is a picture of your body. And the trumpet is the message that God has for you that he wants you to sound out to the world. And when they came up against 135,300 men who were greatly outnumbered, God said, when you come into this thing, and there's a science to this, but I don't have time to get into it this morning, the way he did it with 300, if you put him in companies of, 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 of 30 at nighttime, it, 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 to the Midianites, it looked like they had 300,000. But the truth of the matter is, they only had 300. 
And when they're ready to go up against these Midianites, the Holy Spirit of God says, okay, boys, we're going to go to battle. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that pitcher and break it. I want you to hold that light up high, and I want you to blow the trumpet. And the picture is this. He got the victory. Because before God's light can ever shine and you can ever say the message of God through the trumpet, you've got to get your vessel broken. You've got to be broken first before the light of God can shine through you. Now, the Old Testament event, God showed us that he will always get the job done with a minority, a remnant, but it will take a special kind of person. It will take somebody that is, realizes the battle you're in. You realize the self-discipline you've got to have, the accountability you've got to have, the passion you've got to have, the responsibility. You're not just going to look at that Bible like, the, like everybody else does. That's going to be your Bible, and you're going to spend the quality time drinking that water the right way. And when the time comes, God's going to break your vessel. The light's going to shine and you're going to sound off with the message of Almighty God. You never look at the odds, folks. You never look at the fools of this life, Christian or non-Christian, saved or unsaved. You'll never take it personal. You'll never worry about it because you understand the great truth that greater is he that is for us than those that are against us. And when you have the water of God in you and you have done the time diligently to drink it and you have got your vessel broken that the light of God shines and you've got the trumpet of God that you're blowing out a clear message, don't you care what anybody thinks about it? You be used of God and you let his light shine forth. You can't do that when you're bucking everything that God's doing. You can't do that when you're a stubborn ass. You can't do that as a fool who hath no structure in his life and everything about him he turns at corrective to help them, they reject. You must first be a broken vessel. Only then are you fit for the master's use. Romans chapter 9 verse 21. And the Bible tells us that in a great house, God's got vessels of honor. God got vessels of dishonor. And God's going to get honor and glory out of both. You may sit here this morning and you think, well, I ain't doing much right with God. I'm not going to give God the glory. You're wrong. God will get the honor and glory out of you one way or the other. It's just the ride along when you give it to him is a lot more pleasant than when he has to come and take it. But he'll get it. There won't be a wicked king, a wicked nation. There won't be any man down through history, any nation. You think of the most wicked, vilest person on this planet that God won't get honor and glory out of their life even though they never acknowledge God. God will get glory on them by judging them and reigning supreme. It will always be better just to make yourself a vessel of honor and give it to him than him being you being a vessel of dishonor and him coming and taking it the hard way. These are three great verses. And these verses show you and me the difference between a wise man and a fool and how that keeping our emotions in line, building us a wall around you first, the people you're working with, me with this church, you with your families,
is the key. And realizing that you help people, you realize that there's people, that's the job that we're in, giving people the best shot we can, giving them openly, only the best chance, but I fully understand that not everybody's going to make it. And when they don't, doesn't matter to me one way or the other because there'll be somebody else coming through that door that wants it. I feel sorry for them. I feel bad for them. But at the end of the day, life is choices. And you'll have to make your choices just like I've had to make mine and like you'll have to make yours. Just make sure your choices are based on the principles of the sound foundation of the Word of God, not on your emotions. Well, we'll hold up there.